Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nahum chapter 2, the book of Nahum chapter 2, and Nahum being a small book at the end of the Old Testament, uh, you would find it in the Minor Prophets between Daniel and the New Testament book of the Gospel of Matthew. Nahum chapter 2. Last week, as we considered Nahum chapter 1, we found a message of comfort in God's promises of judgment upon the oppressive Assyrians. And so as we come now to Nahum chapter 2, we will find a greater display and, and a more uh, tangible articulation of the word of God against the Assyrians who have oppressed his people. And yet the message remains somewhat the same, that we might find comfort and hope even in the severe words of God against our enemies. And so if you found your way to Nahum chapter 2, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. The word of the Lord says, One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet on the day of its battle preparations. Excuse me, the fittings of the chariots flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to the wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened, and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble. Insides churn, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair? Or the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness proud, and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away? The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed, and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its den with the kill, and its lair with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, in John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life that we know as the Pilgrim's Progress, we read of a story of a man named Christian who is warned by an evangelist that his hometown, the city of destruction, would be judged by God and that brimstone and fire will rain down upon it. And so as he hears these words from the evangelist, as the evangelist warns him to flee the wrath to come, flee to yonder narrow gate, that you might be saved. 
Christian begins this path on the celestial city beginning at the narrow gate and as he read in a book of the city of destruction was going to be destroyed by God, he believes the word of God and he flees from his hometown, the city of destruction. He flees for the celestial city and for Christ, the Lord of that place. And as we read some of the words of Christian throughout the Pilgrim's Progress, we come to understand that the city of destruction is really representative of this present evil age and the world in which we live that is marred and broken by sin. And God, in, in, through John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress, and certainly in his word, promises to bring judgment and final destruction upon these things. He promises to bring final destruction upon the city of destruction. And in Nahum chapter 2, we read something of a snapshot in the destruction of the city of Nineveh. We see something of a snapshot or a, a foreshadowing of the destruction of the city of destruction, the destruction of the world, the destruction of the things of this present evil age at the end of all time. And so the world in which we live, this evil world, mark, is marked for destruction by God. We saw last week as we looked at Nahum chapter 1 that we live in a world that is marked by sin and rebellion and that sin and rebellion manifests itself in wicked leaders who are reigning tyrannically. We saw this in a, an overall rejection of God's moral law. But we also saw this in the personal uh, effects of the oppression of sin in our own hearts and minds and interpersonal relationships. And yet, in Nahum chapter 1, God called us in the midst of that brokenness and in the midst of that rebellion to find comfort in Him. Comfort in His character, for He is good, sovereign, and wise. But to also find comfort in His plans and His purposes, first for His people to provide refuge and shelter for them in the midst of this destruction, but also His plans and purposes for the enemies of God's people as He brings them to their end. The message of Nahum chapter 1 was that in the midst of all of this promise of destruction, in this, uh, the horror of the scene that we see in Nahum chapter 1 and chapter 2, we can find comfort in God and in his word. You see, because God had raised up the Assyrians after all, if you remember from last week, we uh, found that the context of Nahum was that uh, God was going to bring judgment on the Assyrians because they had overstepped God's intent for them. God had raised up the Assyrians to judge his people, first to sweep away the northern kingdom in judgment, which they were. They were exiled and deported in Assyrian exile. But they also come up against Jerusalem and Judah. And as they come up against Jerusalem, God promises through the prophet Isaiah that they will not set foot inside the city of Jerusalem. And though the Assyrians besieged the walls of Jerusalem for several years, they were unable to conquer Jerusalem. God delivered his people in this way, and then he sends an angel through the camp of the Assyrians and kills 185,000. But some 100 years later after this, we read of the Assyrians rising to power again, regaining their strength. And at the same time, Judah is under one of its worst kings that she has ever had under Manasseh. And he has led them into idolatry. And this sets the stage for the prophecy of Nahum against the Assyrians. For in the midst of their iniquity, God is going to judge them for their sins. This is a pronouncement concerning Nineveh. 
And so last week, as we focused on the message of comfort in Nahum and and God comforting his people by promising in no uncertain terms that judgment and destruction is coming for Nineveh, in Nahum chapter 2, we read that God details the destruction of Nineveh in vivid prophetic imagery. And so we might ask, as we're reading through this prophecy, why is it that God decides to detail in such vivid terms the destruction of Nineveh? Well, I think it is one to stir confidence in God's people, in their God, that God is going to certainly bring these things to pass, that God is going to deliver on his promises. But I also think that in a greater sense, the the redemptive context of Nahum shows us that uh, God's judgment and destruction of Nineveh foreshadows the greater destruction of our enemies to come in the future in the form of sin and Satan. And so we understand from Nahum that deliverance from any oppressor, whether it be Nineveh or whether it be from the bondage and enslavement to sin, the deliverance from this oppressor comes only by the sovereign intervention of God. Where Assyria would oppress Judah by their threats and by their violence, sin, the great oppressor of the Christian, comes to us, oppressing us through death and pain and sorrow and sickness. It comes by way of temptation and by our flesh as it is at war with the Spirit. And here's the main point of Nahum chapter 2, that God's judgment upon the oppressor brings comfort to those living in the shadow of oppression. And so while we may have been delivered by Christ from enslavement and bondage to sin, we still live in a world marred and broken by it. We still live in a world by which Satan oppresses and sin oppresses, and deliverance from that only comes by an act of God. And knowledge of that, and knowledge that God is going to bring that deliverance, brings us comfort as we live in the shadow of that oppression. The doom that is promised upon Judah's oppressor in the form of Nineveh shall come upon the greater oppressor of sin and death at the end of all things. And so as we look now to Nahum chapter 2, we want to see three things that God promises upon our oppressor. The first of which is that God scatters the oppressor. God scatters the oppressor. Look back at verse 1. In verse 1 of Nahum chapter 2, we read, One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. We read here that one is coming up against Nineveh and he is said to scatter them. And while we understand that it is uh, that God will raise up the Babylonian Empire, we can read through history and read through the New Testament that it is the Babylonians who came up against Nineveh and scattered them. We read of one here in Nahum. For we understand that it is God alone by his sovereign hand who intervenes in the, uh, the national affairs of the world to bring about his sovereign will. There is one who comes up against them to scatter them. And in the midst of this scatterer, as he comes to destroy Nineveh, they are called to preparation. The guards are manning their watch posts. They're watching the roads, bracing themselves, summoning their strengths, manning the fortifications. They're summoning and mustering all the strength that they can because God is coming against them to destroy them. They're readying their shields, bloodstained from previous victories. They're brandishing their spears, ready to fight. The officers are calling to their men under their charge, be ready, for God is coming against us. 
They ready their chariots and they prepare their walls, which, by the way, we remember from last week, were built for a 100-year siege. These walls were considered an impregnable fortress. They were impenetrable. And yet, in all of that, we read that they stumble. We read, as we read through verses 1 through 5, that they seem confused. They seem panicked. They seem frantic as they stumble to the walls because the scatterer has come up against them. This is God, Yahweh. We read in verse 2, For the Lord, Yahweh, will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, through rav- though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. It is Yahweh who is coming up against them because he has made a promise to his people that he will restore them to their former glory. This is the God that we read of in chapter 1 who is a jealous God. And the Assyrians have worshipped false gods and they have attributed their uh, victories to false gods, though it is God who had raised them up in the first place and granted them the power that they had. He is a God of vengeance and they have oppressed his people and God will bring vengeance upon them. He is a God furious in wrath and he will pour that out upon them. He is a just God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. And he is a God who is great in power and sovereign over his creation. He is the one whose path is on the whirlwind and the storm. He is the one who the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He is the one who parted the Red Sea and caused his people to come over on dry land. He is the one who dried up the Jordan River and allowed his people to pass into Canaan and conquer it as theirs. This is the God who rises up against them to scatter them. And what we see in that word scattering is first that God is going to do to them as they have done to others. The Assyrians were the ones who were known for deporting nations that they have conquered. As they came against them and they defeated the military might of these nations, they would scatter them throughout the Assyrian Empire so that they were unable to unite and come again in insurrection against the Assyrians. And so what God is showing us by scattering them is the same thing that we saw last week, that their oppression would not rise up a second time. He is scattering them abroad so that they might not unite again and rear their head against God. He scatters them. But I also believe that Nahum chooses this word scatterer uh, that comes up against them intentionally. For I believe this is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 11. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights for our, for our kids' lessons, we recently read in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. And after the flood that happens early in Genesis, the, the people of Noah, his descendants, are given the commission to be fruitful and multiply, to uh, scatter abroad, disperse throughout the earth. And yet, in pride and arrogance, they come to one place and they begin to build a tower and to try to make a name for themselves and to exalt themselves against God. And in Genesis 11, as they're constructing this Tower of Babel, God comes down and he beholds this tower with its top in the heavens. And God says in verse 8 of Genesis 11, from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building this city. Therefore, it is called Babylon or Babel. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. 
God is promising to do to Nineveh what he did to the arrogant in Genesis chapter 11. As they exalted themselves against God and tried to make a name for themselves, God scattered them, confused their language, and ensured that they would never rise again to this kind of power and effort against his name. God is going to disperse them and confound their efforts. He's not just going to spread them around, though. He's going to remove their ability to threaten And so here we have this call to preparation for God, the one who scatters, is coming against them. But their preparation is in vain, for the might of the mighty Assyrian Empire is no match for the might of the Lord of Armies. And so God, his judgment comes against them for their abuse of power and for their oppression of people. Uh, and God, who has, was the one who raised them up in the first place, promises judgment upon them. And he does this to restore his people. You see, God will punish the enemies of his people, and in doing so, he restores the fortunes of his people. God never forgets his people, no matter what wrong they had done. Though they had given themselves to idolatry and given themselves over to sin, God has not forgotten his people and the covenant that he made with them. And the eminence that once belonged to Israel will return again in its fullness. Brothers and sisters, the application for these verses is one, a reminder that we are powerless against our oppressor. We are powerless in and of ourselves against sin, against Satan, and against our greatest enemy that is death. But God is powerful against them. The sovereign God of creation will finally once for all defeat them at the end of all time. God comes up against and he will scatter. God scatters the oppressor. But there is a second thing that I want us to see in Nahum chapter 2. And that's in verses 6 through 10. We see that God nullifies the temporary successes of the oppressor. You see, as God rises up to judge the Assyrians, we see that his judgment actually includes the undoing of the temporary success that they enjoyed. Nineveh had gone through the nations, they had conquered, and they had built wealth and power for themselves. But now God, when he comes against them, undoes all of the temporary success that they experience and actually reverses and nullifies the success that they had. In verse 6, we read of a, of a river, then the floodgates being opened. If you remember from last week, God promises that he would overwhelm the Assyrians with a flood. And while this speaks to, in one instance to uh, them being overwhelmed by military might uh, by the Babylonians, it speaks in another way prophetically that it was by the flooding of the, river, of the Tigris River that they were overcome in the first place. These years built to withstand a 100-year siege were washed away in this flood. And it was through that opening that the Babylonians come in and overthrew Nineveh. And so here, the success that they thought they had with these river gates and, and the mighty walls that they had built, they sweep in and they erode the palace. The river that was their protection became their undoing. And the palace that symbolized their authority is eroded away. And the Assyrian king no longer has a place to rule from. The beauty that they had built for themselves is stripped away. And they are carried off into exile. The security that they had secured for themselves is stripped away from them. And now it's turned to lament and to mourning as the young women mourn in the streets. 
their resources are draining, their people are fleeing, and their wealth is plundered. While they boasted in what they had built for themselves and the wealth that they had robbed from other nations, God is going to strip it away from them and give it to another. Their abundance is consumed. And then we read in verse 10 that their strength is broken. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows The Assyrians thought that they had something, but we know that you can't have nothing. And so the Assyrians rise up and they have their shields brandished and they have their spears in hands. And yet at the thought of God coming against them, they melt. Their hearts are melting. Their faces grow pale and their insides are churning within them. They are in turmoil within themselves because they know they don't stand a chance against the God of heaven and earth. They're paralyzed and fearful. And so God reverses this. They had put their trust in their power and their resources and their wealth and their military courage. And all the temporary success that Nineveh had experienced is brought to nothing by an act of God. While he had raised them for a supernatural purpose to judge his people, he now brings judgment upon them. Nineveh is brought low. Their resources gone. Their strength broken. And dear Christian, as we think about the destruction of Nineveh, we are reminded of a future destruction of oppression of sin and of Satan and of death. And it might seem that in this present evil age, sin and Satan are winning at times. In the battle against temptation and the oppression of the world and wicked men in high places, we think sometimes that Satan is winning. But God will undo any perceived progress at the return of Christ when he speaks with a word and judgment of a sword coming from his mouth and he puts all enemies under his feet. While sin seems to make progress in this current world, when Christ has the final word, it will make no more progress. And in fact, the progress that it, we perceive that it has made will be undone. It will be reversed, for Christ will make all things new. God nullifies the temporary successes of the oppressor. But there is a third and final thing in verses 11 through 13 that we need to see concerning God's judgment of our oppressor. It's that God removes the oppressor from power. Look again with me at verse 11. Where is the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions where the lion and lioness prowled and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away? You see, in this final section of Nahum chapter 2, God brings judgment upon Nineveh and and it's depicted as unseating them from power. He's going to humiliate them and, and Nahum describes it in terms of a lion's den. And this this imagery of a lion was a very appropriate analogy because the kings of Assyria loved to compare themselves to lions. They would uh, have stone carvings of lions through their palace and throughout the cities. Uh, They would write about themselves in terms of lion-like behavior, prowling and conquering. They would hunt lions to even show their own power. Men, if you think that killing a deer with a rifle made you a man... The Assyrian kings would say otherwise. Try hunting a lion with a spear. And so they would hunt these lions to show their power. 
They behave, their behavior toward the nations uh, they conquered was lion-like. They overpowered and devoured their prey. They were the top predators of the ancient world. This lion imagery aptly describes the cruelty that we'll read about next week in, uh, in Nahum chapter 3. It aptly describes their cruelty. And so Nineveh, The capital city of Assyria had become like a den of lions where the young lions would go out to war and they would devour their prey and they would bring the spoils back to the city for the entire den to be enjoyed. It is their place of security for who would attack a den of lions? Well, the Lord God of armies comes against them and now Nahum mocks the Assyrians and Nahum takes their boasts and turns them on their head for he says, where now is the lion's den? Where are the lions now? Where is your den of refuge and safety? Your security has been stripped away. Where is the feeding grounds and the hunting that you reveled in? Your prowess has ended. Where are the violent kills that you boasted of? Where is the devouring of your prey? Your brutality has been reversed. Where is your strength and power? Where is the roar of the mighty lion? Your strength has been broken. The Lord of armies speaks against them. And he says in verse 13, Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The one who scatters, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, has come against the tyrannical lions to end their reign of oppression. And he speaks against them some of the most dreadful words that we can read in Scripture. For the Lord who had created them says, I am against you. Their weapons of war, verse 13 tells us, will be destroyed. Their officers and their soldiers will be cut down. There will be no more victims for them to prey upon. And their messengers of victory will be silenced. For the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the commander of legions of angels who has come against them. And it was the Assyrians who God sent just one angel against and destroyed 185,000 of their soldiers. And now the Lord of hosts The Lord of legions of armies has come against them to destroy them. He is powerful over every earthly force. He is the one who ends all rebellion. He is the sovereign ruler over all of his creation, including the nations. And he reigns with a rod of iron by a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, the king of Assyria thought of himself as a lion until he met the one true lion, Jesus Christ. The Lord is spoken of as a lion all the way back and prophesied concerning this in Genesis chapter 49 where Judah is spoken of as a young lion and he will the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. This same imagery of Christ as a lion is picked up on in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, where the lion of the tribe of Judah uh, is, uh, and the root of David has conquered, it says in Revelation 5, 5, so that he is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of David, comes against Uh, the nations. The Lord of armies comes against Assyria to judge them for their iniquity. 
While the king of Assyria desired to be worshipped as a god, Christ alone, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is worthy of worship. And he returns to conquer uh, as a conquering lion to destroy all rebellion and opposition to his reign. The Assyrians have learned that anyone who would oppress Christ's people will receive justice. And he says, I am against you. As I've already mentioned, I think these are some of the most dreadful words in all of the scriptures. But the question comes to us this morning, who are these words for? Well, certainly they're for Nineveh and the king of Assyria, as the Lord says, I am against you. Certainly they are against Satan as uh, the great deceiver. The Lord is against him. Those words were used against Jerusalem in Ezekiel and also in Jeremiah to say that God was even against his own people at a time as they were given over to idolatry. But these words, I am against you, are for anyone who would rebel against God Almighty. These words are for anyone who is a sinner and a transgressor against God's law. One author said this, if you have gone your way, spurned God's law, sought out your own corrupt devices, justice demands your eternal condemnation. God must and will judge you. In terms of that great judgment, which is hell, the fall of Nineveh is almost insignificant. If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, if you have rebelled against God's law, which every one of us have, the words of God to Nineveh are the words of God to you. I am against you. And if the words of Nahum chapter 2 and the destruction that we read about are frightful to you, it is nothing. It's almost insignificant compared to the destruction of the wrath of God in eternity for you. The city of destruction will be destroyed by God in Christ Jesus for he is against it. But the question for you this morning is, will you flee the wrath to come? As I opened with this illustration from Pilgrim's Progress, the evangelist comes, he shares the good news and the hope of deliverance of Christ, the hope of eternal life in a celestial city. But the promise only comes to the one who flees the city of destruction. Will you remain there in your sin? Or will you flee the wrath to come? Will you flee to Christ? There is only one refuge. There is only one shelter from the judgment of God upon those deserving his destruction. And that refuge is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered death and hell. Nineveh was heaping up for themselves wealth and power and a name for themselves. Is that what you're trying to do this morning? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Consider the folly. Consider the end of such a life. For God says, I am against you. But there is hope for you in Christ Jesus. There is hope for you, not in the line of Assyria, but in the line of Judah. Find refuge in him. Trust in his righteousness. Re repent of your sins and flee from the city of destruction and flee to Christ. For in him there is eternal life. But dear Christian, these are words for us as well. As we consider the world that we live in, we remember that deliverance from our oppressor comes only by the sovereign intervention of God. 
And so as we live in this present evil age, striving to be faithful to him, we wait upon the Lord. We recognize that we have no power against oppression and sin in our own ability and in our own strength. We trust in him. We rest in him. We give it over to him. I was reminded this week of Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20. We read there of the account of Jehoshaphat as the Moabites and the Ammonites are coming against him. And Jehoshaphat rightly falls on his knees before God. And he acknowledges the sovereignty of God over the nations. He acknowledges God's strength and power. He acknowledges God's faithfulness in the past. And then his final closing words of that prayer are these. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The hope of Jehoshaphat is the same hope of Nahum. We trust in the Lord our God. As Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We wait upon him for deliverance. God's judgment upon the oppressor brings comfort to us as we live in the shadow of oppression. In this sin-fallen world destined for destruction, we find comfort in the Lord of armies and in the line of the tribe of Judah. We know and we anticipate that he is going to destroy all enemies and put them under his feet. And in the meantime, we wait and trust that he is good, sovereign, and wise, and that in all of his plans and in all of his purposes, he will surely bring our good and his glory to pass. And so we trust in the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of this world, beginning in our own interpersonal lives and in our relationships and our struggle with sin. We trust in the sovereign hand of God. On a national scale, we trust in the sovereign hand of God. Though nations rage and peoples plot in vain, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And on a spiritual level, though Satan oppresses and sin oppresses, we trust in the Lord our God, for he will deliver us from evil. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these promises of you to us uh, that you will judge our oppressor. That sin and Satan and death and hell are defeated in Christ Jesus. And for the one who the word comes against this morning, you are against them. We pray that they would find refuge in Christ. We find that they would have hope in him. And for we Christians living in a present evil age, God, we pray for strength to trust in you that you would deliver us from evil, that you would keep us from harm, and that you would give us grace to wait upon your timing as you work out your purposes in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.